0: Good day everyone and welcome to today's program. At this time all participants are in listen only mode. Later you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question anytime by pressing star and 1 on your touch tone phone. You may withdraw yourself from the queue by pressing the pound key. Please note this call is being recorded. The information and views conveyed by the Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement. It should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. It is now my pleasure to turn the program over to Mr. Jim Washer. Please go ahead, sir.
1: Thank you, hello and welcome to today's Energy Intelligence Virtual Roundtable. My name is Jim Washer, I'm Executive Editor with Energy Intelligence and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion, Big Oil's Climate Dilemma. The new administration in the US may be trying to roll back climate change legislation, but the facts remain that other countries are taking steps to reduce emissions and tackle urban air pollution and that green energy technologies are getting cheaper and more effective. All this poses a challenge for an oil sector still recovering from the price downturn of the past two years. So if the world really is starting to move towards a lower carbon future, what should oil companies do? Should they try to become leaders in clean energy? Should they choose gas investments over oil and hope it emerges as a genuine bridge fuel? Or should they just stick with oil in the hope that forecasts of oil's demise have been grossly exaggerated? To consider these questions, I'm joined today by two of my most knowledgeable colleagues, in Washington, D.C., we have the editor of EI New Energy, Lauren Kraft, and in France, one of our leading experts in the areas of climate change and clean energy, Philippe Roos. Lauren and Philippe, welcome and thank you for joining us today.
2: So, Lauren, let's start
1: with you. Now that the Paris Climate Agreement has been ratified, governments are presumably going to be moving the world towards a lower carbon economy. Investors and the public will be applying pressure too, and technology is moving in the low carbon direction, both in transport and in power. So as this energy transition marches forward, what are the big strategic decisions oil companies face?
3: This is one of our favorite topics at New Energy. It's it's a very important topic, and I'm glad to be able to share some of our takeaways with you all today. I'd say that there are three main risks that the low carbon transition poses for oil companies. One is government government climate policy, which is advancing in some areas of the world rapidly while falling short in other areas. A price on carbon that rises over time would force oil companies to adapt and prepare, and from their perspective, it would give them more certainty. Another risk is changing investor sentiments, with investors calling for greater disclosure on on environmental issues and more of a focus on low-carbon assets. And a third is the evolution of transport, which could see things like fuel efficiency, electric vehicles, and changing consumer preferences take a bite out of oil demand. Now, to prepare prepare for these risks, there's a few different strategies that oil companies could take. One strategy is working within the portfolio. Uh, You're already seeing... um, Some oil companies placing more of an emphasis on oil plays that have a lighter footprint. You've seen many exit the oil sands in Alberta, for example, which is considered high carbon, although these companies are mainly citing economic reasons since the oil sands is a high cost play. A similar strategy is kind of cleaning up existing oil and gas operations, uh, for example, by using data tools to improve energy efficiency or by using technologies to curb methane leaks. Another strategy is rearranging the portfolio a bit. Many oil companies are already giving natural gas a greater weight in their portfolios, and the advantage of this is that gas is the cleanest burning fossil fuel, so it does lower their footprint significantly, and it fits with their experience and their expertise. The problem is that gas has its own competitors in the form of uh, renewable power, especially with the costs of solar and wind falling. Eventually, rearranging things slightly or cutting emissions from existing operations may not go far enough, and a more drastic, bold option would be for oil companies to try to ride the wave and become a leader in new energy. Uh, This would sort of be like following the model of Apple, to borrow an example from the IT sector. Uh, With Apple, they largely reinvented themselves in the past few decades, and big oil could try to do the same thing. Uh, Right now, no oil company is anywhere close to this, but you do see Total in France. They've made some bold investments in solar and batteries, for example. Um, And then another example, uh, to use a government um, instance, is Saudi Arabia, which is trying to build up renewables quite a bit so that it can diversify its economy and not be quite so dependent on oil for revenues. Then on the opposite end of the spectrum is the big tobacco model, Uh, This technique would involve big oil kind of paring down and becoming a smaller industry. And even if gasoline and diesel demand is lowered over time because of the shifts in auto transport, oil would still be needed for other products. And as the size of the industry shrinks, companies could focus on issuing dividends instead of expanding. And, of course, oil companies are kind of in a wait-and-see mode right now. They want to see how far the technology and the policy and the markets actually move in the low-carbon direction. They will also want to be cautious about where to invest uh, if they take the route of Apple. This is because in alternatives, you see winners and losers, too. Um, For example, uh, we've seen biofuels and carbon capture losing some momentum over time, whereas things like solar and electric cars are gaining more traction than we thought.
1: Okay. Okay. So let's um, look at the future of oil demand. Oil has held a monopoly in automotive transport for generations, but as you mentioned, Lauren, it faces now a serious competitor in the form of electric vehicles. Uh, Philippe, you've crunched the numbers on how much oil demand could be taken away by the shift in transport. What have you found?
2: Well, first of all, uh, oil companies and, and other experts insist that transport accounts for only about half of global oil demand. And light vehicles, cars and light trucks, which are the most likely to get electrified for about half of its half. So we really we're talking about just a quarter of the market, and we have to keep that in mind when we talk about electric vehicles. Let's assume that half of those light vehicles are electric by 2040. This is a very, very ambitious assumption. It means that about 1 billion out of the projected 2 billion vehicles on the road by 2035, 2040 are electric. That's up from just 2 million today, so it's a uh, 500-fold increase. That's huge. And that huge increase would mean that about half of a quarter of oil demand disappears to electricity, which means somewhere between 10 and 15 million barrels per day. That's, of course, a big number, but it wouldn't mean the end of the oil industry. Uh, And you also have much less ambitious scenarios, which are, for example, BP's base case in their uh, energy outlook, where they see some 100 million electric vehicles on the road by 2035, or you have the International Energy Agency's base case, where they see 150 million electric vehicles by 2040. And these assumptions, which are already quite ambitious, uh, they involve it's about 1.2, 1.3 million barrels per day of lost oil demand. That's about 1, 1.5% of the market, so it's, it's almost negligible. Of course, we could have, on the other side of the, of the spectrum, we could have more than, uh, than 1 billion vehicles on the road before mid-century. For example, the Carbon Tracker Initiative bets on 1.2 billion electric vehicles by 2040. Which is based on predictions that electric vehicles become more become cost competitive with conventional cars as soon as 2020 thanks to the virtual circle of size and cost reduction quite comparable to what we've seen in uh, in solar energy uh, or you have the international energy Agency's new Paris compliance scenario, the so called well below two degree scenario. Which is 1.5 billion electric vehicles by 2040, which would be considerable. Uh, how would we get there? Policies would help, also of course. That includes subsidies, tax exemptions, free tolls, free parking, reserved lanes, or bans on polluting vehicles in big cities. I mean, all those policies already exist in some locations uh, across the world. What would also help is the combination of the electric revolution, so the electrification of vehicles with a digital revolution based on autonomous vehicles, carpooling, car sharing, all all these technologies. Carpooling, for example, could significantly reduce the amount of vehicle miles traveled traveled and therefore oil consumption because you'd have more people traveling in one instead of several cars, car sharing, would also intensify usage and shorten cars' lifetime. The consequence of that is a faster renewal of the fleet and therefore a faster adoption of new technology and therefore a faster electrification of cars. Uh, Two more remarks, maybe. Uh, We've talked about light vehicles, uh, but there's also potential for heavy vehicles, trucks and, and the like, to get electrified. For example, the... International energy agencies well below 2-degree scenario, which I mentioned before, assumes heavy trucks also electrify. That would imply installing overhead power lines uh, along the main highways, the the same kind of power lines that uh, currently power trains. I mean, you could imagine the same kind of stuff and technology for trucks on, on big highways, and trucks would be hybrid. You, they would be electric along those special highways, and we would use diesel or perhaps gas engines on smaller roads. And to conclude, we could also talk about policies aimed at reducing demand for individual transportation uh, by developing public transportation, which could have a quite a significant impact on oil demand, or policies aimed at reducing demand for any kind of transportation. That's could be done through denser city planning or even uh, virtual travel, uh, meaning teleconferences and and that kind of stuff. And that was recently very seriously suggested by uh, uh, HSBC, the bank HSBC, in a a report on the future of oil demand. So I mean conclusion, we could have all sorts of different uh, outcomes for oil demand on both sides of of the range.
1: Okay, and there's a a lot there, obviously, um, that could play a role in in how oil demand evolves. Let's look also at gas, other big asset of concern to the oil sector. Many of the majors have been making their portfolios more gas-focused in recent years, citing climate change as a key reason for this. So, Philippe, do you think this is going to help them survive the energy transition?
2: Yes, definitely, because as as Lauren mentioned before, gas is is the least carbon-intensive uh, fossil fuel, I mean, it's, it's less carbon intensive than coal in power generation, and in, uh, in transport application, it's a much cleaner fuel than oil. It's not necessarily better in terms of carbon emissions in transport, but it's much, much cleaner, which is also a, a, a very important uh, factor. Uh, and on top of that, switching from coal to gas would be, would be rather easy in, uh, in power because there's a lot of unused power capacity around, especially in Europe, so you wouldn't need to invest in, in new power plants to, to very rapidly and quite cheaply switch from, uh, from uh, coal to gas. Now the real question is how long can that bridge be? Because gas it's a fossil fuel and it still emits CO2 when you, when you burn it. If you replace, for example, coal power plants with combined cycle gas turbines, you, you would divide emissions by around two. Uh, coal power plants emit some, somewhere like eight to 900 kilograms uh, of CO2 per megawatt hour, and you would go down to 400 or less uh, with gas, but it's still 400 kilograms per, per megawatt hour whereas uh, models show that the power sector emissions should drop to to nearly zero by mid-century, say around 50 kilograms or no more than 50 kilograms uh, of CO2 per megawatt hour by mid-century to keep global warming below 2 degrees. That's a problem. That could be solved maybe with CCS, carbon capture and storage. Uh, That could extend the potential life of gas as a bridge fuel. But the problem is it would also help coal. Uh, And coal is a cheaper fuel than gas. So I'm not quite sure if, if it's Good news or bad news? If CCS works and and become uh, uh, and become a viable solution, and and on top of that, many experts doubt it can become a, a viable and economic solution anytime soon for for a number of not not technical reasons, but mostly cost reasons. And another point is that if you apply CCS to gas turbines, you would probably lose some of the flexibility of this. Uh, of these machines, and that could be a problem, because another key argument for gas is that the flexibility it has and the ability it has to make up for the intermittency of wind and sunlight in a heavily renewable power mix. I mean, that, that flexibility argument is actually a very strong one uh, for gas, uh, although I should insist that it doesn't necessarily translate into huge amount of gas consumption because in in that heavily renewable power mix I've just mentioned, you'd need the gas infrastructure, you need the gas power plants, but you probably wouldn't use them for many hours across the year. year. You would just use them to correct imbalances uh, and you would more and more have on top of that other instruments to correct the imbalances such as cheaper battery storage or you could interconnect many more renewable sources together in different locations so that when you have wind on one location, no wind on the other location, on average you could always have a decent amount of availability of your renewable sources. And longer term, uh, you could also keep the gas infrastructure, keep the pipelines, keep the power plants, but Run them with an increasing amount of biogas or, or perhaps hydrogen instead of natural gas, same, same infrastructure, but different or changing natu- nature of gas that you run for this infrastructure. In terms of costs, uh, European oil companies insist that gas would need a carbon price to displace coal, a fairly modest one actually around 10 to twenty Euros or dollars per ton, uh, to, so to displace coal and clean up uh, power generation, that's quite true. Uh, the problem or the, the, the issue is that carbon pricing would also reinforce wind and solar and other renewables against all fossil fuels, including gas, and, and in, as, as uh, Lauren mentioned before, in the U.S., gas is, is cheap enough that it doesn't even need a carbon price, so what would do we really need a carbon price, and what kind of carbon price? That's a, that's an open question. Okay.
1: So the oil business, the oil business is clearly grappling with how to survive under all these changes and challenges. But not every oil company is thinking about this in the same way. So which oil companies, Philippe, you say, are taking the biggest steps to adjust their business models to climate risk?
2: Well, the the green champions uh, among oil companies and are European and among European oil companies they are arguably include Total as as Lauren already mentioned. You could also include probably Statoil of Norway or Shell. Uh, I'm not going to go into details about who's doing what. Uh, I'd like to emphasize a few points about those green oil companies. Uh, First of all, even the most ambitious of of those uh, companies, which arguably is Total, they say they want to increase the share of low-carbon energy in their portfolio from the current 3% to around 20% by 2035, uh, which means that 80% of Total will still be oil and gas, so oil companies are going to remain oil companies for quite some time, even the greenest ones of them. Now, it will be a different mix of oil and gas, most probably. Uh, companies such as Total or Shell or BP all see an important role for natural gas as the as low-carbon bridge, and they're already producing or planning to produce more gas than oil, which, by the way, me- makes carbon pricing all the more important for them because gas has to win market shares against coal if they want to to be able to sell all the gas uh, they're planning to produce. And uh, within oil itself, Total and other companies emphasize emphasize low-cost resources to avoid getting trapped in a a stranded asset situation uh, in case oil demand weakens and expensive resources get pushed out of the market. In terms of actual renewable or low-carbon investment, Total has been put in Quite a lot of money into non-oil and gas, uh, low-carbon industries. That includes the acquisition five years ago of a majority stake in SunPower, which is a US-based solar panel maker and project developer. Uh, it includes the acquisition last year for about a billion euro of Saft, which is a French battery maker, and we have also invested about 200 million. Uh, Euros on Lampiris, which is a Belgian company, a power and gas supplier to small businesses and residential customers, and Total is also uh, also looking at wind opportunities, but quite interestingly, onshore wind rather than offshore wind, because we find offshore uh, too expensive. And by contrast, for example, Statoil believes in offshore wind uh where they plan to build on their existing expertise in uh, in oil and gas offshore because you whether you build a oil and gas platform and, or or an offshore wind you, you you build that on the same foundations another example is shell uh, they have recently announced the creation of a green energy division where they plan to 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 pursue a asset-light approach, focusing on existing locations and infrastructure. Uh, examples of that include concentrated power solar, which, is, uh, which people usually know as a power generation technology, but uh, Shell uh, is interested in it not for power generation, but for enhanced oil recovery in the Middle East. Uh, they're also into onshore wind in the U.S. and the Netherlands. They're also in uh, hydrogen fuel cell pilots, in biofuels. What's most interesting, I would say, about those uh, oil majors looking for green is that they're still looking at what the right business model could be, and that's that's not very easy. Uh, for example, they are oil companies are are good at developing big projects, so one could could e- easily imagine that they could expand in, uh, in developing and building wind farms, solar farms, and that kind of stuff. But actually that industry is already crowded with uh, very experienced players such as uh, big utilities such as ETF, Enel, or in the US next era. So I'm not sure the oil companies would have much to add, uh, much value added to add in that uh, project developing business. Similarly, I mentioned Total has acquired SunPower and SAFT, which are basically manufacturers of uh, equipment, but Total has also said that they don't see themselves as manufacturers in the future, so obviously, uh, I mean, there's a question mark here on on what direction they want to to take with those investments and what they want to do with them in the future. So what do green oil companies want to do? They all say they want to be solution providers its it's It's quite a bit vague, but there are some ideas uh, total for example again they could i uh, mean they mentioned they could offer solar panels, combine that with batteries, offer that to industrial business and perhaps residential customers, and maybe use their very strong balance sheet to provide financing to for those equipment the way Actually, car makers can finance your, your new car. I mean, solutions involving the combination of, of many, many capabilities. Another example is Shell. They have wind generation in the, in the U.S. They have access to hydro assets in the U.S., and they're actually using that to provide uh, renewable, power across the, renewable power around the clock to Silicon Valley customers, and they say it's a, it's a very profitable business. Uh, another idea could be to build uh, hybrid systems combining solar energy and gas. Uh, and similarly, StatOil also is looking for the same kind of what they call holistic solutions, combining again gas turbines, batteries, solar, uh, wind, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it, it's still work in process for for these green uh, oil companies. Okay, thanks. So that's
1: um, a good run through, particularly what's happening in Europe. Um, Moving back to you, Lauren, in the US, we find some oil companies, some oil companies laggards really when it comes to climate policy, or is that even a fair way to describe them?
3: This is an interesting area. Um, If you take the two biggest US oil companies, uh, Exxon and Chevron, their main philosophy is that they don't want to change their business model much. uh, They tend to convey the message that people are still buying their products, um, that you don't see carbon pricing uh, everywhere, Um, it's only in certain regions, and um, they convey the idea that alternative energies aren't profitable enough yet. That's not to say that they're doing nothing. Uh, Both use a shadow carbon price in planning their long-term investments, which is basically a placeholder that assumes carbon pricing will be there in some amount. They have some clean energy investments, although this is tiny compared to their overall portfolios. Uh, Energy's, Exxon's uh, clean energy strategy, while it's small, is a bit unique because they're focusing on early research and development, especially with biofuels, rather than buying up fairly mature clean energy players, as you've seen with Total's uh, acquisitions that Philippe mentioned. Um, Exxon does support a carbon tax, although it's not very proactive about pushing it, um, probably because gas is already gaining in the upper hand in the U.S. uh, without a carbon price. It says that a carbon tax is preferable over cap and trade because the price is predictable, you can plan for it. Chevron is even less phased by the clean energy transition. It does not support a carbon price for economic reasons. And while it has some small investments and alternatives, its underlying philosophy is that it isn't obligated to invest in alternatives, that's not its business. This is a shift from a few years ago when Chevron was quick to point out its green energy investments in areas like geothermal, but it's now sold those investments off. In general for the U.S. majors, they're not as proactive or climate conscious as the European majors. And to some, this means they're laggards um, because they are arguably missing opportunities to adapt. They are missing out on chances to make their voice heard. Then from their perspective, it means they aren't jumping the gun. They are waiting for bigger signals to be given before they take drastic steps to go green. And of course, gas is already competitive in the U.S., um, where a lot of their operations are. So they aren't as insistent about pushing a carbon price as their European rivals for that reason.
1: Okay, interesting. Um, I think at this point, it would be good for us to take a short break and see if we have any questions coming in from our audience.
0: And at this time, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press star and one on your touchtone phone. We'll pause a few moments to allow any questions to queue.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, and while we're waiting, why don't we move on to the issue of policy. Um, what can governments do to compel more action from the industry? And are policymakers around the globe doing enough, Lauren?
3: The main thing that governments could do is set a price on carbon. By way of some background, in 2015, a few months before the Paris Climate Summit kicked off, Six European oil companies, who were later joined by another one, so it became seven oil companies, wrote a letter to the UN, um, the climate officials at the UN, asking for a carbon price. In many ways, this was a PR exercise, but in other ways, the oil companies have a good point. Without a carbon price, there's not really a setup for them to take significant action to curb their footprint faster than they are or to invest in alternative energy more than they already are. And if they did go green in a big way without a carbon price, um, they'd run into some issues. They wouldn't be considered accountable to their investors, and it would basically be asking them to take a leap of faith that their competitors would do the same And uh, another remark is that even in countries or regions that do have carbon pricing, the the prices are kind of across the board, ranging from roughly $3 in some places to around $20 in others, if you look at today's uh, numbers. On the other hand, their call for carbon pricing also creates an easy excuse for not taking more drastic action because it's clear that not every country will get on board with carbon pricing in the foreseeable future. Now the Paris Agreement is now about a year and a half old, and the way I see things, I would have expected more carbon pricing uh, or carbon pricing to advance faster than it has uh, at this point. There is some progress to point out though. Uh, And The biggest area is China, which has operated regional carbon exchanges for a few years, and it's now approaching the launch of a national carbon market later this year and when that starts it should be the largest largest carbon market in the world in terms of the amount of pollution covered another country where a lot is happening is Canada where the administration of Justin Trudeau is planning to launch a national carbon price next year and you're also seeing some action in Mexico and South Africa and these places are joining you know the ranks of governments that are already uh that have already had carbon pricing in place, including Europe, South Korea, New Zealand, and certain U.S. states. Um, but on the flip side, there are many countries that don't even seem to be talking about carbon pricing at all or are talking about a completely different strategy. India is a big one. Um, they're a growing source of emissions and energy demand, and they uh, really want to use more energy to bring people out of poverty. Um, Instead of carbon pricing, they're focused on a goal of 65% renewable power by 2027 or thereabouts, um, which is ambitious, uh, but it's not the same thing as carbon pricing. Um, And other examples are Australia and the U.S., which don't seem to be moving on carbon pricing, uh, either due to a lack of political consensus, at least at the national level, um, but you do see some uh, regional action. As climate talks and um, country-level policy negotiations continue, it raises the question of how active oil companies should be in that dialogue. If they decide to become very involved, they'd be seen as solution makers, as Philippe mentioned, um, which could help them earn more of a social license and help them shape policies that are easier for them to deal with. But it could also lead to things that may strain their balance sheets, such as a carbon price, because they'd be required to buy a lot of the permits. Um, The former UN climate chief uh, said last week that 2020 could be the year where a big turnaround may start to happen in the clean energy shift, and believe it or not, that's less than three years away. And if she's right, and bigger shifts do start happening in policy, technology, or investor sentiment, we may see kind of a tipping point in which big oil is forced to adapt its, its business model in a bigger way.
1: Okay. Um, let's just pause again to see if we have indeed got any questions coming in from, uh, from our audience.
0: And It appears we have no questions at this time, but I'll remind our uh, participants it's STARM1 to ask a question.
1: Okay, thanks. Um, well let's look then uh, next at the US which is still by some distance the world's largest um, oil consumer and also the second highest uh, emitter of greenhouse gases. We now have though a White House that places far more weight on the economy with much less emphasis on the environment, President Donald Trump's motto after all is America first. Does that mean climate policy is really at odds with this strategy?
3: You know, there's quite a split within Trump's administration about this issue, and really the big question is whether Trump will keep the U.S. in the Paris Climate Agreement. The president is still deliberating and seeking input from his advisors and various stakeholders, which shows that he's carefully calculating his options. Some say that U.S. participation in Paris would place the U.S. at a competitive disadvantage to other countries that are arguably not doing as much on climate. And one of the people in that camp is Trump's Environmental Protection Agency administrator, Scott Pruitt. But what's interesting is that in just the last few weeks, some energy companies, including Exxon, Chevron, Conoco, and the energy export company, Chenier, um, have been coming out in favor of the U.S. staying in Paris to one degree or another. Their statements show that they see Paris's quite a bit bigger than whether just the question of whether we support climate action or not. The thinking is that exiting the agreement could cause the U.S. to lose out on diplomatic currency on other issues like trade and security, and also miss out on business opportunities abroad. I think that the most environmentally friendly approach we could realistically expect from Trump is for him to swap out the Obama administration's Paris Pledge, which is called a nationally determined contribution, with one that's weaker or more business friendly, while still maintaining U.S. involvement in the agreement. Um, If he decides to get out of the agreement, on the other hand, there are a few legal techniques for doing so. Uh, There's a U.N. climate conference coming up in May in Bonn, Germany, which could force some decision making by Trump and his State Department. Um, So I think there's been a lot of flurry of activity and opinions given and meetings held, and uh, the administration is really trying to make a decision um, in time for that meeting in May. Then there's the issue of domestic climate policy, which is also important just given the scale of U.S. emissions, as you mentioned, Jim. Under the former Obama administration, the Clean Air Act, which is a law from 1990, was used for the first time to regulate greenhouse gases. And there's a lot of conflicting legal rulings about this. Um, Trump has taken steps to back down from this Clean Air Act strategy, but because Obama opened up the process, the government is required to keep going and regulating all sorts of stationary polluters from power plants to refineries to iron and steel. Now, there are some rumors that Trump is considering a carbon tax to pay for his broader tax reform plan for corporations and households, um, maybe paired up with a clause that says the U.S. can't regulate greenhouse gases with the Clean Air Act anymore. I think this is a long shot, but Trump does need something to pay for his tax reform plan because it's expensive, and he also needs something to use as a bargaining chip with Democrats in Congress, especially the Senate, um, whether that's the carbon tax or something else. And if climate, if, uh, if climate doesn't um, I'm sorry, if Trump doesn't come up with a climate plan of his own, which I think has a fair chance of being the case, then the issue could be forced by legal decisions over the Clean Air Act approach, which are ongoing.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, And I think with that, in fact, we are almost out of time. Um, So it just remains for me to thank everyone who's listened in, and of course to thank Lauren and Philippe for their thoughtful answers. Um, Our next virtual roundtable takes place next month, so please check our website www.energyintel.com for details of the topic and participants, which will
2: be posted shortly. So until then, thank you, goodbye, and see you in May.